We are stories, that's all we are. We are the stories we share with each other. When we go off this planet, all that we leave behind is some form of a story. Every human has a story worth telling. The best of us, the worst of us, we all have a story somewhere that's worth telling. And if you're in journalism, your job is to be the vehicle to allow those stories to come forward. We're allowed to learn as a publication, as a teacher, and for heaven's sakes, as a school community. And I sometimes think that journalism kids are really in a lovely place to be a little further out there in terms of equity and in education and in uh, kind of fearlessness. Friends, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yearbook Wise podcast. We are deep into February, almost uh, into March, and uh, I don't know about you, but we are staring our final deadline straight in the face, and uh, things are, are feeling a bit hectic. I wanted to get this episode out to you, uh, and fair warning right from the top, um, this one's a, a bit heavier um, content-wise, and so as my guest uh, encouraged me to think about, you know, if, if you're somebody that listens uh, maybe on the way into work or when you're out and about on a jog or something like that, you may find that this is an episode best kept for a time when you can approach it uh, a little bit mindfully and uh, just uh, being conscious of some of the topics that we get into uh, full disclosure, we do talk uh, about suicide and passings and ways in which we can support our students uh, covering those topics um, or passings of, of students in our communities, uh, tragedies when they happen uh, in mindful and respectful, humane ways. So uh, take that as you will right from the top. I, I will tell you, I, I think that this episode, uh, as uh, much as we deal with some heavier and, and I think timely topics, uh, I do hope that you'll agree by the time you finish it that it's one worth uh, listening to and, and honestly maybe listening back to for all the territory that we cover. If uh, you're headed to the spring convention of CSPA, the Columbia Scholastic Press Association in Manhattan, uh, later in March, I hope to see you there. I've got a bunch of sessions coming uh, and quite a few that I'm teaching with my editors-in-chief. Uh, there's two panels that I'll be hosting called Confessions of Former High School Journalism Nerds, where we look at or we invite uh, young professionals in Manhattan who themselves were once in our publication labs or on our yearbook staffs to come in and share their stories and uh, to, to share with our attendees the paths that they took through college and into career readiness. Uh, they're always phenomenal and, and well attended. But uh, if you're able to make it there to CSPA, it'd be great to see you. Uh, make yourself known and say hello. And if you'll be joining us at uh, the National High School Journalism Convention uh, later in April, I hope you'll uh, say hello. And I do hope to be back with you, certainly between uh, now and then. Today's guest is Ellen Austin of the Harker School in California. Uh, originally from Minnesota and uh, a business major and photographer. She's worn a lot of different hats in her career, but she is a master advisor and someone uh, whom I admire enormously. Uh, she, as you'll see, has, uh, I think, a pretty incredible uh, perspective to offer. And uh, as I say, and as I remark more than once in the episode, I could, uh, I could just chat with her all day and, uh, and take it all in. We'll get right to it, friends, and again, fair warning, uh, some serious topics ahead, and feel free to, uh, to take the episode in moderation. Here's my interview with Ellen Austin of the Harker School. So 
So joining me on the Yearbook Wise podcast today is my good friend, California-based uh, Ellen Austin. Ellen, thank you very, very much for making the time. We're recording this on a, on a Sunday. I know you hopped over to school uh, to help me out with the recording, but thanks for, for being with us today. Hey, Mike, it's really wonderful uh, to be invited to be on your podcast. I think you're, you had some really wonderful episodes, and I'm really excited to be one of the people that you're with. Can you give our audience a little bit of Ellen 101 uh, about about where you are now, but also <laughs> where you've been and, and your journey through scholastic journalism? Um, sure. I guess I'll start with the now and then do the way back time sure. machine. Um, I teach at the Harker School in San Jose, California. This is a smallish uh, private school of about 800 students, about 100 faculty. We're a four campus K through 12 school. Um, I'm the director of journalism here, so we have four robust pieces to the program, a yearbook, a newspaper, an online site, and also a, a full-bore feature project, which I can talk about separately, called Humans of Harker. And that's where I am now. Uh, I am the teacher who said I would never become a teacher. That was my refrain repeatedly all through my life until they, they got me. My mom was a teacher. I never wanted to teach. I saw the time commitment and the service commitment. And I said, not for me. I majored in business. I went away and lived overseas. I did art and photography. And one year, one day, somebody called me and said, hey, uh, we have an opening at our school because somebody left. It was a good friend of mine. And she said, do you think that maybe you could come and teach at our school just for a year? And to be honest, I was sitting there thinking, hey, health benefits, because I had a photo studio in St. Paul, Minnesota at the time. By the way, I'm from the Midwest. I'm not a Californian. I grew up in Illinois yep, yep. in the Rust Belt, absolute Rust Belt, terrible, terrible recession stories of that area. And then after college and after living everywhere else, I moved to Minnesota and made that my home for almost two decades. So I was just going to do a year and it was a commute out to this little farm town of about 3,000 kids. And I thought, hey, why not? And uh, that first year, I just, it caught something in my heart. So I signed a contract again and then dang it, well, I needed to do one more year. And as, what was it, Robert Frost said, as way leads on to way, here I am 22 or so years later, only now I'm in a place where there's no snow on the ground, the flowers are blooming, and I've been out in California now for about 13 years. Wow. What a what a what a journey too! And I didn't I didn't know about the business major in your background either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did not mm -hmm. know. Well, listen, yeah. I, uh, I I've known you going on. I think it's been probably going on a decade now. Um, via, oh yeah, I think you're right, Mike. You know, through our, our workshop experiences and and overlap at CSPA and NSPAs, and I know we'll be seeing each other soon in a couple of weeks. But yeah, one yeah. of the the other places where we um, we mix it up professionally is in the the online the, the facebook groups that i mention fairly frequently um on the podcast i have a facebook problem um i have a <laughs> at least you're acknowledging oh it. my gosh it's it's terrible i i have an internet problem and it's truly something that um, i need to be dealing better with uh, but that said it's been really enriching uh to be a part of some of the professional networks out there um, equally, actually, much, much, much more so also to be in the professional network that is the the greatness of the Journalism Education Association. Um, but you and I, again, have our, our hands or hearts and minds in a lot of those spaces and places together. And one thing that I've always appreciated about you is your capacity for sharing and, and sharing pretty frankly and, and honestly. I've, I've come to know and admire you as a, as a pretty straight shooter. Um, and you don't 
you know, just spot off with stuff to like to push people or to be at all antagonistic. But at the same time, when you offer advice, you're direct about it and not like mushy gushy. And I really appreciate that about you because I when I get into it, like I hedge and I use too many words and I just really appreciate how forthright you are. Um, And that's one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to ask you on the podcast, because I want to talk about tough topics and I want to talk about developing our programs. And it's in kind of that lens where I've seen you contribute a ton to the conversations out there, whether it's on the JEA listserv or Facebook. So I'm not trying to lavish praise all over you, but I do want you to know I'm speaking from the heart and and just hold you in in such high esteem that way. I'm really glad that you're going to be able to share some of your insights and and perspective with advisors out there, because I know there's a lot of people with the same questions because you're always the one on Facebook answering them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I want to thank you for that, Mike. That's really high praise. And I, I really feel a little, uh, I don't know. Uh, It's hard. It's hard to hear people say things like that, but I really appreciate it. I do think it's important to remember that, Sometimes if you're a teacher and it's in this current time in America, we have an interesting double problem or a double hmm, paradox that we face. I think that overall teachers, we're in a time where teachers are somewhat beleaguered and we're uh, for a lot of reasons that you could do on a different podcast. Teachers kind of get pushed back on, they get beat up, they get emails, they get lots of things. When they're living in a job in which your personal values and personal character traits are sort of what you're working with all day long. That is the magic of a teacher. A teacher is character. That's theoretically, I think, at the top of the list. You know, they say that that famous quote about kids won't remember what you taught, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yes. And that is one million percent about who a person is in front of this very precious resource, which is America's future, standing and sitting and talking in front of us. So I think that it's also really hard. A lot of teachers are being hit hard and their hearts get hurt. And it can become tough to stand up for what you believe in or what you think is right because you don't want to have the have the heartbreak of, of, of kind of being bullied, <laughs> actually, is what I'd say. I think teachers kind of get, get almost hazed or bullied sometimes when they do take a stand. That is part one of that. But part two is, Mike, you and I are, are journalism teachers, and I've seen your posts as well. And I think you are very diplomatic, but I also think you are quite candid and direct. And I've never seen you shy away. And I can think of about Oh, just off the top of my head, if I started listing them, it's a 10 or 20 advisors that I, I always look for their names to show up because I know they're going to say something. They're going to stand up with like a spotlight on them. And they're going to be like, I can't be quiet. If someone's saying this, I need to say what I think needs to be said. Right. They already know what they believe. They're saying it for others to try and, and, and pass along something they, they know. I tell my students when they're asking me what I what I look for in a leader when I'm doing my scholastic leadership run-up, I tell them the one essential ingredient in journalism is courage. It's courage. You have to have the courage to stand up. And Mary Beth Tinker is famous for saying, stand up for your rights. I was just running a, one of her videos that a student made up, excuse me, a profile that a student had written about her after interviewing her at the NSPA convention in DC last fall. And we had... We're fortunate enough to have Mary Beth Tinker out here in 2014 
along with Fred Korematsu's daughter, Karen Korematsu, which is the court case that led to, that was the challenge about the Japanese relocations right. to internment centers, which we're having an anniversary of right now. Um, and both Karen Korematsu and Mary Beth Tinker in 2014 stood in front of my school. And by the way, my school is about 80 to 90 percent first generation Americans and families that have come from all over the world to come here and be Californians and be our next generation of Americans. Well, one of the things that both Karen and Mary Beth Tinker said was stand up for your rights. And I think that is correct, but I think it's important not only to stand up for your rights, but to be able to stand up and say in a civil and it can be firm, but civil way to say what you think is right without attacking another human in the, on the way but just to say what you believe is is honorable, what is correct, what is right, and to try to make the world a little better. And sometimes that happens on Facebook. Sometimes it happens on the listserv. Hopefully most of the time it happens in our day-to-day -day interactions in our classrooms and with those in our communities. So that was the Yearbook Wise podcast with Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, there's, I'm sorry. No, Mike. not at I let off all. on a tear. No, it's. Oh, you... I, I'm just. I'm. I'm so. I'm, I'm leaving this all in. I, I'm just so glad that uh, that you're here with us today, and and that you always do. Um, as I've come to know, uh, speak firmly from the heart. Um, you know, last year I was sharing this with you in, in the run up to, to getting ready today. Um, we had Rebecca Pollard on, and we were talking about making those first, taking those first few steps from in your book world, I know you live in online and newspaper as well, but in your book world from a uh, photo book, just kind of slapdash and, and get some photos in there and, and sell them and, and do the football and homecoming queen thing into, hey, we've got a staff on our hands that wants to take its first steps toward journalism and providing more uh, meaning and more content for uh, their audience, especially in the years to come. And um, it was a great episode. You can go back in the feed and, and check it out. But now that, you know, the podcast is a year later, and, and now that I've got you here and knowing how passionate you are about journalism, journalistic coverage, doing it right, and really tackling some tough topics, um, I wanted to unpack some advice or perspective that you might have, especially for newer advisors who might be um, maybe still feeling out their relationship with their administrators, still feeling out their relationships with their students, certainly, um, but might be approached by those same students with a concept or a pitch for coverage. I don't want to jump, you know, fully in the deep end on, on quote unquote controversial, but, you know, more hard hitting news or more sensitive journalism or heavier, weightier topics than just uh, the volleyball team had a car wash on Saturday, you know. Where are some, some entry points for a staff or for an advisor who want to move in that direction? If they want to, maybe one of the tamer ones might be like, you know, can we include climate change in our publication or can we talk about vaping or something like that? You and I both know there's people on, on Facebook, there's advisors in our networks who feel either a little bit of anxiety or straight up want to run the other way when some of those topics come up in our labs. Where do we start? Well, Mike, you, you, you said it before in a previous comment. We're in the world of journalism. We're not, we're not a public relations tool. We are, the, we are the guides to the students who are trying to be the student voice of their community. And our students are, they are wise, especially if we give them space and listen to them. They are wise. 
Sometimes they're very ardent and need to be pulled back a little bit. Sometimes they go off in a tangent and need to be redirected. But they're wise. They are not growing up in a world that is simple. They're growing up in a world that's very complex. They see things that are shiny and bright and good and positive. A lot of those shiny and brights and positives are the people called mom and dad and the other trusted adults in their lives. They're very, when you see the, the information about this generation coming up, they often say that their heroes are, are people they know um, or they're people still living, right? They're not saying Abraham Lincoln. Right. They're, they're talking about, um, you know, my mom or somebody who, you know, they're talking about someone who, uh, like Greta, Greta Thun, Thun, Thunberg, if I'm saying that correctly, Greta, um, you know, and they're saying like, that's someone I look up to, which I think gives us a little bit of an insight into who they are. Um, we're also doing a publication that is the first draft of history, whether it's the newspaper or the online site or the yearbook, we are the first draft of history. And as we all know from yearbook land, if it's not in the yearbook, it didn't happen. Right. So if something isn't stated in the yearbook, good heavens. What does it mean 50 years ago? If you were to look back, I just mentioned something about the Japanese internments. What would it be like if in 1944 someone hadn't mentioned there was a war going on? Because, ooh, that's unpleasant. What if in 1969 you were a Berkeley yearbook and you just, somebody said, well, you know, that demonstration in the street stuff just doesn't feel very good to me. Can't we just leave it out? Wow, you look at the headlines of the time and then you compare it to what should be your student voice. When you see that disconnect, you go, if they left this out, what else are they trying to cover up? What else is unpleasant? What else are they trying to shield? So I think that telling the truth is an important part of all of our publications. When looking at how to make a yearbook more journalistic, I think it's important for an advisor, especially a new advisor, to not try to do it all in one fell swoop and to keep saying to yourself, there will be time, there will be time, there will be time. And instead of viewing it as a 10-month process, to view it as iterations of a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. When I came to Harker, I told my boss, I have a five-year plan of my own. I've written it down. This is where I'd like to see us. I came in 2013, 2014. This is where I'd like to see us when we see May 2019. And that freed me up a little bit to have a pin in a map way down the road that I knew I was tilting towards and it gave me hope. It also allowed me to say, what's the piece that I can attack this year and try to move forward and reiterate and reiterate and reiterate as we go. So when I came here, the yearbook needed more attention and time to bring it into the 21st century sort of yearbook land. The news site was already pretty strong. So for my first two years, for example, I focused on yearbook and we had a glide path or flight path, if you want to call it that, it was looking at, at uh, an incline that was going to happen year over year. And my deal with my editors was to say during our summer retreat, we do a summer retreat every year where we get together for three or four days and kind of get the book plotted, planned, and really oriented so we can come back and just jump in at, at, a, at a pretty fast rate of speed. I always say to my yearbook editors, what's your one big thing? And this was advice that I've heard both from, uh, I've, I've heard it from Sarah Nichols. I've heard it from my yearbook rep, Carla Hansen, God bless her. I've heard it from Ann Akers. Um, 
just do one big thing per year. Don't try to take it all on what's your one thing. So that's been really effective for the yearbook staff. And every year, it's like, this is going to be our one big thing. You guys can take on the next big thing. Keep this one rolling and you can add one thing. Right. And that has allowed us a lot of room to succeed as well as giving us room to vision because the kids who are doing the one big thing this year, the kids who are coming behind them are like, what are we going to do? What's our thing? What are we missing? What might we want to try? So that's kind of cool. Our first one big thing was photography. We just weren't, we weren't doing yearbook photography the way we thought we could. So that spinning that plate and getting it up to speed and getting it to work, that was a three or four year loop all of itself. And it involved, okay, we've got to do training. We've got to do uh, get gear. We've got to build a through line from the seniors down to the freshmen. And that means we're looking at a three-year path so that today's freshmen can become tomorrow's seniors, right? So I think looking down the road is a really helpful thing. And then the second thing is, of course, about uh, topics and coverage. And I kind of have a lot to say about that. We cover in the newspaper and online, we get pretty deep into whatever is a controversy of the day. We get into sensitive topics pretty much every 24-hour news cycle sometimes, <laughs> it seems to me. And I take, you know, pop another Rolaids and just go, oh, please, please let this one go fine. Um, but with the yearbook, one of the things that we've been doing, I've, this is my seventh year advising yearbook here at um, Harker. I hadn't been a yearbook advisor. I was on my high school yearbook staff. I was on my college yearbook staff for a couple of years. And now I'm a yearbook advisor. You talked about how do you start changing things? Well, I think Rebecca's comment about, you know, you start treating it journalistically. You do journalistic captions. You know, hey, I want five W's and an H in present tense on every photo. Second sentence, I want it to be in past tense, something I can't see by looking at the picture. So I think that's how you start in the small ways. Kids get used to that. You teach the basics. You don't say I'm teaching your book and I'm teaching journalism. You say I'm teaching journalism. Right. It's your book journalism or news journalism. And you make sure the kids have all the tools. For me, um, with yearbook, I've kind of had two strands. We have, I have kids on yearbook who do see the yearbook as being a more positive reminder of what the year was and wanting to kind of really celebrate our highs and not over linger on the, the sad moments or the tragedies or the, the controversies. Having said that, We've had great conversations about that being our truth, our reality of 2015 or 2018 or 2020. And what I've said is if it's not reflected in the yearbook, then you're saying it didn't happen and we know that's not going to be true. So we're trying to find ways to make sure those things go in. This year, the we're doing, um, we're doing something called 20 on 20, which is a repeater that's happening of 20 things. Uh, it, it takes a while to go into it, but 20 on 20. And one of the things we're talking about is what are the, the 20 things that were our high points this year and what were the 20 low points? And that seems balanced to me. I, I mean, I think we've got to talk about coronavirus, right? Is, you know? Let me interrupt you for a second. Uh, is the 20 on 20, um, 20 highs, 20 lows, do you mean, um, well, with what, uh, what, what's your field of view? Are you talking about Harker, one kid, or the whole world, or somewhere in between, or all of We're it? We're talking about year, like a year in review, got like it. looking Thank at you. this year yep. as how we lived it, both local, uh, paralocal, so California, yep. et cetera, and U.S., and then world. Yep. So the classic example right now, I mean, I, I said 
we've been doing this all year long when something will, will happen in the news we're keeping a notes file of this needs to go in our thumbs ups or a thumbs down about the 2019-2020 school year. So coronavirus is there for us. I don't think it's fair to look back at a yearbook out of Northern California where we have cited coronavirus cases and not be able to see, hey, by the way, in 2020, this was something we were dealing with. I think it's real. Now, we also have things that are local that aren't particularly maybe um, savory or great. Um, and I think those are where kind of some of the tensions are. We are going to say that vaping was one of our thumbs downs this year because it's real. And it's real in every single American high school. It's real in every single U.S. state. We have a national lens trying to stop this. We have kids who are uneducated who are hurting themselves forever because they think vaping isn't as bad as cigarettes and they're wrong. Right. So, yeah, do I think vaping needs to be mentioned in the yearbook? Yeah. Do I think we need to men do I think we need to do a 1000 word piece in the yearbook pages about it? No, but please go to Harker Aquila and read what we're trying to talk about with it. So we've talked about about those next, those incremental steps. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I love you invoking Sarah and Anne. And, and it's something that has been absolutely a through line over multiple episodes uh, of the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've heard as well. And I don't always, frankly, remember and do so well myself that that, that one big thing, uh, because if you if you cast about too far, you're, I've got to do this and this and this, and it will drive anyone to madness. Um, <laughs> That's what coffee's for, Mike. That, don't you? This, this podcast was brought to you by <laughs> coffee. Um, I think you need to be sponsored by Pete's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's. I'm, I'm gonna. We're gonna make kind of a clean break there and, and move on to more of, of some of the things that I've really appreciated um, that you've brought up, and it, it has a ton of currency um, right now. I want to talk about um, LGBTQ issues and trans students, um, particularly. Uh, or, or simply, because it's a simple thing, but it's, I think, loaded or, or can be feel complex. Um, things like naming uh, and, and pronouns and um, things that have, I would argue, and maybe it's a, a Pollyanna, maybe it's a privileged point of view, but feel like uh, in the 20 or so years that I've been advising, this, this has really uh, come in in the last five years or so, where... Um, I feel like my staff at Tesserae has, has dodged some bullets um, rather late in the process where we find out that a, um, that a kid, uh, a student has decided to uh, change their name uh, and, you know, has begged questions of, do, do mom and dad know? Or is this legal or is it not? Or, hey, Mr. Simmons, what should we do? And I said, well, maybe we should have a policy uh, in place. Or I cast about and talked to uh, advisor friends. Um, there's a lot here. I've kind of set the stage for you, but could you talk us through, um, I know many times on, on Facebook, you've, you've spoken about the ACLU and their uh, guidance on naming conventions and publications and things like that. Um, that does feel a little bit like jumping right in a, in a deep end. I want that in here, but, but talk to me a little bit about starting points or where you started seeing this and, and some of what that conversation or experience has been like for you. So, Mike, I really appreciate you. Um, I, you're, you're right. I, I have commented a lot on this in the last several years. I'm not the only person commenting. No, I, no, I, no. Yeah. I'm very uh, grateful to colleagues. I know Logan Ivany is someone whose name you'll always see Absolutely. in this. Uh, I see Matt Laporte commenting a lot. Um, I see Tracy Ancena talking a lot about these issues, too, and others. Um, and I think that what you're noticing with all of those people uh, and obviously you and me, you're seeing people who um, 
who sort of reflect a lot of feelings about the individual's place in the world that we exist in, as opposed to the right of a society to tell a human what a human should be. So I don't mean to get all like rah, rah, rah about it, but you know that thing about um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the whole idea that Thomas Jefferson, when he was framing some of this stuff, was talking about inalienable rights, rights that belong to a person because you woke up and you started taking air. These were rights that belonged to you. That, that was there was a reason it was revolutionary. It was revolutionary because that wasn't what came before. So, you know, if you kind of... Uh, have your feet a little bit stuck in that kind of, of, of thinking, uh, and I sort of do, it tends to shape where you land on what a kid should be called in the yearbook. I know that was a huge uh, trajectory or maybe a, a really fast-moving dart, but that's, I guess, the easiest way for me to say it. Look, I have kids in my classroom. They are children. They are humans. They are humans who have rights. Tinker v. Des Moines was a Supreme Court case that told us from the highest law in the land three things, that a kid in America is an American. A U.S. citizen is a U.S. citizen, regardless of how old they are. They're a citizen. If you're a citizen, you hold rights. They are not given to you. You hold them. They are yours. They can't be taken. They can't be given. They're held. And the third thing is then that, therefore, that trickles out to a whole lot of things that we see in our constitutional rights, our legal codes, our blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of the high part of this. That's not usually where the discussion goes on a school campus. It ends up back there at some point, but it's not usually where it starts, and that's unfortunate. I need to say as part of my commentary in this that a few years ago I was teaching at a school up the street, Palo Alto High School in Palo Alto, California, we had a very tragic situation there for a while of, of, of a well-known suicide cluster. We had kids taking their lives. And when you come to school in the morning and you wonder whether all of your kids will be alive that day, and that happens day over day, month over month, year over year, you're always kind of wondering, am I going to go into my classroom today and then have bad news? Um, that starts to make you think about a lot of things. So that's also a piece of this. And when I moved to this school, to Harker, where we have, uh, we do a lot of work around, you know, every school can do more, but we do a lot of work around the whole kid and the safe kid and trying to provide a, a, a basis for thriving. Um, one of the reasons that matters to me is because I think we need kids to stay on the planet. And... This planet has a lot of challenges and we need every kid right now to be a part of the joy that's coming in the future and the solutions that need to happen in the future. We really need them here and we don't wanna lose them. We certainly don't wanna lose them. We don't wanna lose kids because they come to a school campus and feel that someone has tried to cancel them and negate their basic humanity. And that's where I start with these questions is you're a human and you have some doggone important rights. So where does that come to with naming? Well, you're right. Um, we, our identity comes down to our name. When you're unconscious, when they're teaching you CPR, 
and you're getting, you know, a lot of us teachers who get our certification, they say, if you know the person's name, call their name. Because if you are near death, using your name will pull you back out of unconsciousness. When you realize how important a name is, that it can actually save your life, why wouldn't we want to call a child what they want to be called? The world is full of people who've changed their names. They, including a lot of women who changed their names because they got married. Um, and there was no problem with changing names and schools don't have any problem with that, right? right? That's a really good we point. Don't have, <laughs> we don't have any problem in the staff section of the yearbook saying, Ms. Smith is now Mrs. Olson. Can you make that change? It happened mid-year. Oh no, let's change that. We want her to be Mrs. Olson and get a new sign on her door. So when you notice that, you know that we actually do this and we understand it. Therefore, that's not where the problem is. The problem is somewhere else. And that dark, not particularly kind, not particularly human rights-based, um, loving kindness-based approach is why we don't want kids to change their name because someone is saying, I don't want you to because I don't agree with you. And what I would say, it's not your business to agree or disagree. Your business, especially in the yearbook program, your business isn't to agree or disagree. Your business is to publish the name. That's your business. And your business is also to advocate. Don't get in the way of us using the names that we're supposed to use because right. we're supposed to use them. Um, I want to just take one more step here, though. I'm lucky because a few years ago, um, you know, I think we all, I, I tell my students that I'm lucky that I get to learn every day in the classroom along with them. I have a student who absolutely taught me for three years about what it is to be a trans kid in America today. And this was a four-year yearbook kid who came in to, as a ninth grader as one name and one presentation to the world and graduated four years later with a different name and a different presentation to the world. That student is currently at UCLA just doing awesome work, is a residential advisor, is an activist on campus. And that kid also was an activist to me. And I learned a lot that I hadn't thought of before because of my age and my cultural background that has stuck with me. So I just want to do a quick shout out to Kai at UCLA and say thank you. Thank you for not giving up on your teacher and thinking it was worth it to do the work with me too. My, uh, my shout out goes to Xander Thurkins. Uh, out here so I have one I think I th I think kind of critical question and I won't be shocked if you've got the perfect talking point to guide me through this so what about the circumstance in which I have found myself where one of my students says oh Mr. Simmons um, you should check in with so-and-so they are uh, they're you know they were born male they're presenting female they've changed their name they're using it with me and all of our friends. My next question to that student has been, can you get this student in front of me uh, or me and an editor to find out if the parents know? And and I I don't think this is a fraught question. I feel like I need to, to humble myself to it. But like what, your books, I don't feel, should be in the business of outing a kid to the parents, but I also don't know if this is actually an erroneous concern that really doesn't actually crop up that much. And, you know, most parents are on board, but do you have, I, I know that you and I have seen that question. I, I feel like I've seen it anyhow on, on Facebook. I'll speak for myself. Um, is, is there anything that you can do to help guide me or audience members through that? I, I have asked 
a, a trans student in, who's been in my lab. Can you just can you tell me a little bit of, about this? Is this something uh, that your folks are uh, aware of and knowledgeable? Like I, I don't know, I'm stumbling for the words to what I would say to that kid. But the two cases that it's happened, mom and dad have known. I'd be like, okay, that's great. But if the book drops and and Jenna is suddenly James, does that leave our staffs, us as advisors, in a, in, a, in a tough place, or do we need to put the kid above all? Am I asking that the right? I, it's too long for a question. I apologize. Yeah, you know, I, I think back about our shared history in American education and how every time we have one of these, oh my gosh, moments, which tends to come from dominant culture, let's get real. It tends to come from a very specific, and I'm not going to get into all of the adjectives, a specific part of the culture going, oh my goodness, what do we do if? Um, I think we could learn some lessons from history a little better and relax a little bit and and start to um, also understand we're in a process, not a product sometimes with, uh, not sometimes, let me say that again. With children, we're in a process. We're not in a product. You don't have a kid, you know, ka-ching, turn out the next widget kid, ka-ching, turn out the next widget kid, ka-ching. And in fact, we often talk, especially in journalism, my favorite conversations with fellow advisors and fellow educators and with former students is to talk about the tremendous evolution, growth, adaptation, and change that children go through between the time I see them, usually their first day of their freshman year and then through their last day of senior year. And then if I'm fortunate enough to have a relationship built with them, I stay in touch with them through college and beyond. You know, I've just... Uh, I just reached out to a student who's 34 now and we had dinner a couple of months ago and I'm going to see another one of my first students when I'm in New York next month, who's now got a, a year and a half year old baby. <laughs> you know, those are great relationships to have. And, you know, as I said to them, you know, you're now the age I was when I was your teacher. Do you ever think about that? And they said, are you aware that I've known you? I've known you longer than I haven't known you in my lifetime. So those are great blessings. And that's really such a, a gift and a magic of teaching. But, you know, this whole like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Kids are in a process. 15 years ago, we were in a similar place with kids who identified as LGB. And before the T sort of entered into our, our cultural awareness and, and broader, uh, broader address, those kids who were trans really were, were to be honest, endangered in a time where they were still in the LGB, LGB community was sharing some openness. A lot of trans kids still weren't benefiting from that, that pathway opening. So, you know, I don't know if you want to talk issues of any other blend that a person could be or any other situation. We talk about ableism. I have a student who uh, navigated school in a wheelchair who also gave me a lot to think about, about ableism and how we speak and those things. And I'm so glad that I now exist in a, in a pretty normal, normal, uh, no, sorry, I want to say that again. I'm really glad that now I have more wisdom from that student about what it means not to do things in a minimizing or I don't just call it wrong way. So look, we're not, we're not handling trans kids the right way for those children and for their humanity. So we need to get better about it. We just need to get better. And 
that's going to have some difficult earth points along the way because change causes those points of dissension. It also causes people who want to say, my viewpoint matters more than your reality. That's often where we see adults getting into this on a school campus. My viewpoint is that your way is wrong. And that's not how we do education in America. That's why we have things like the Supreme Court and the ACLU and other stuff, is to help look out for that. So my thing is, it's a process. So a kid comes into school in ninth grade presenting one way and using one name. They leave four years later and they're presenting a different way using a different name. Okay, let's flex with that. Let's flex with that and let's see where they are. Again, my job is to try to keep a kid on the planet. That's my job one. And my job is to understand that I am supporting a, an educational world in America that theoretically is built on equity, that's built on kindness, it's built on understanding that you don't always have the right answer on February 24th, that answer might evolve. What I do in the yearbook this year might be different than how we approach it next year because we've learned and we're allowed to learn. We're allowed to take that with us, God bless us. We're allowed to learn as a publication, as a teacher, and for heaven's sakes, as a school community. And I sometimes think that the journalism kids are really in a lovely place to be a little further out there in terms of equity and in education and in um, kind of fearlessness. Uh, I could listen to you talk all night. And you're giving me a, oh, a, a ton to a ton to think about. No, it's it's really. <laughs> then let me sip some coffee and shut up. Yeah, no, no, it's it's there's so much, and, and what you said about, um, I'm gonna have to listen back to it myself, and I and I will, but but my viewpoint negating your reality, um, there, that that's that's so real for kids and, and people in all sorts of different minority positions be it mm -hmm. dis physical disability minority or racial minority or lgbtq all it, it, there, there's so much there so thank you for for sharing that uh that that sentiment yeah um, no that's okay mike can i just add one thing to that please. i didn't get into the part about what happens if a kid is presenting in one way on the school campus and is presenting in a different way at home whether in whatever part of their identity right and um that one is tougher. And again, I'm always going to come back to, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a journalism advisor second. I am a teacher, number one. And that guides me when I get into some complicated scenarios. I look at the, I look at kids' safety first. Is the kid safe? Am I doing what I have to do and what I am legally mandated to do to keep a child safe? And it doesn't matter if it's a child in my program. It's a child. It's a child. And that's my job. So I certainly also, you know, good heavens, I would never, I would never allow my staff to out someone who was in uh, because I would assume that there might be safety issues involved. I would never force the point that a child was presenting in one way on campus and therefore we have to. Um, no, 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 no. And I would be careful. Uh, I would be careful and again, be flexible. I think your instinct and your action was spot on to say, to ask the kids, can you reach out to this kid and tell them what do they want? That's what we do here. I reach out to my editors when we have this. I say, you need to talk privately and, and quietly 
to any individuals who you think might have a sensitivity to how they're named in the yearbook, how they're presented in the yearbook. We allow our kids to be shot in tux or drape. It's up to you what you want to be shot in, and you can be shot in both. You know, if I have kids who've had uh, uh, terrible issues where they were like, I have to be shot in drape because my parents won't allow me to be seen in tux, but can I be shot in tux for myself? Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, and then you just have to make sure that, um, you know, that, that we're all working to keep kids safe. And again, in LGBTQ stories, uh, LGBTQ and beyond the, all the pluses, um, also making sure that if kids are offering anonymity and they're on your yearbook staff or your news staff, that that's kind of a holy, a holy uh, confidentiality. And I don't, I don't think we're always as hardcore about saying the word confidentiality means, you know, kind of like omerta in the mafia, you know, you just don't speak. And you really have to emphasize that with kids because sometimes a kid who's coming from one part of the world and one part of the culture might just not get it about the terrible, terrible impact of not honoring uh, requests of others. So whether it's omerta or whether it's be open, you know, those are two things, right? Right. I appreciate you coming back to that too. And um, like I said, for, for any advisors out there listening, the um, rare, uh, infrequent, I should say, cases where we've confronted it at, at Tesserae, um, simply having either an editor or if, if the student is comfortable having them come talk to me and a student. I always involve my staff and, and students, um, not a whole board or panel, just one-on-one, and it's a side conversation. But um, I'm with you. We, we wouldn't want to out a kid without, you know, without their permission or create any issues at home because there could be safety involved there, certainly. Yeah, um, we just want we want to we want to be where they are. We right. want to be where they are and move with them and through that process. And that makes things a little squishy. But hey, that's why we're we're in the business of of squishy education. Yeah. <laughs> Teaching is squishy by definition, right? That, that might be the uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be the title of the podcast or not, but that's a good one. <laughs> well, listen, um, it's a this is a, a, a big there's, there's a lot of stuff that we're unpacking um, in this conversation. Um, and, and I want to, I want to come back, uh, very sensitively to, to something that you've already mentioned. Um, I know when you were over at Pali, you had shared it at that time and you and I have talked about it here and there, and, and you've been very vocal, um, in advisor circles about confronting tragedies at our schools, specifically around suicide, but also students passing, maybe even, um, faculty and beloved adults, uh, passings at, at school. There, there's, you know, related thoughts and related sensitivities there, but, just, I don't, I don't want to say just briefly, but I also know that, that you and I could talk about this for quite a while. Um, could you share a, a few tips that you would have for advisors or staffs, be it, you know, develop a policy so that when you're in the heat of it all, you can, you can refer back to that. I know that's a, a common refrain. Um, but how have you advised staffs? What do you see as some of the best practices involved in broadly passings and tributes or journalistic coverage of, of passings, but also very specifically, we are confronting a lot of mental health and suicide issues um, these days. And, and it's a tragedy, but that content is finding its way into a lot of publications or unfortunately, other staffs are steering clear of recognizing perhaps a student's place in their community for fear of uh, speaking frankly, quote unquote, glamorizing um, a, a death by suicide. You and I know there's a lot there, and I'm just gonna uh, let you let you come come at it. 
Okay, thank you for the, uh, <clears throat> I, I apparently got all the topics for the, uh, the uh, easy and, and spun sugar after. <laughs> I, I, I told you there was a reason I was bringing you on, and, and this is it, because you're very, I mean, all, all joking aside, and I know it's like three for three on biggies, but you're, mm -hmm. I, I, I genuinely appreciate the perspective that you bring um, to, to so many others on this. So, okay. yeah, the floor is yours. Wow, Mike, those are a lot of uh, really big, deep, kind of at the crux of, of one's professional and personal motivations in why you stay in the classroom or leave it. Um, and that's going to be, I'll, I'll try and unpack an answer for you. However, I'll unpack this answer, which I, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that somebody's going to just turn the, turn the podcast off right now and go, Oh, I don't want to listen to this. <laughs> oh, I'm driving to work. Like, can you give me something that's a little easier? So I'll answer this. If you'll give me the opportunity to, to talk separately about something that I feel equally passionate about that I don't get to speak much about on our, in, in what you see me posting on nationally there's something else i want to say so if you'll let me say yes, the please. second part then i'll get into this so you're right and i did mention it before um you know there are things that change us there are just things that change us um i my life changed in in uh, march of 1995 forever from one day to the next it changed forever permanently irrevocably when my very best friend uh was murdered in Minneapolis. And I was an artist at the time. He was my muse. We were best pals. We did everything together. And he's not on the planet anymore. And I remember that day, that aftermath, that everything in ways that always stuck with me. <clears throat> One of the reasons that I guess maybe I do speak about these losses that schools have and that we have just as humans is because most of us will have those losses in our life. I wish that my situation were unique and unshared and that no one else had had it. But I'll also tell you that the first week that I was in my student teaching gig in Minneapolis, an administrator told me that 25% of the freshman class at that school in Minneapolis had experienced the violent loss of someone in their immediate family within their lifetime. So this is real. If it hasn't happened to you, then I'm very grateful. And God bless you for the, for that dodging those moments of, of sorrow and tragedy. But I really believe that those things have happened to many, if not most of us, who are listening or who are in a classroom. So when I was at Pali um, and we were losing kids and we weren't the only school, it's just we were the, we weren't the only district. It's just we became known for it. I really... Um, gave a lot of thought about what happens when we lose people. When my friend was murdered in 1995, the police did next to nothing to bring in uh, the person who killed him. And I won't use the language that was used in the police department, but my friend was bisexual and they just were like, hey, you know, one less in the world. <clears throat> it's not quite what they said, but it's close. And I'll never get over that. There'll never be a day I get over that and that response. I was so thankful about a week later when um, one of the, the community papers, an LGBTQ community paper in Minneapolis, wrote a piece about Mike. And they, they reached out to me because someone said, you've got to talk to his best friend or one of his best friends. Um, and I was so grateful to have the chance to speak about his life and what he'd meant 
He wasn't a statistic. He wasn't the guy who was murdered. He was Mike. He was an incredible composer. And in the news reports, all he was was another statistic. And I think we that helped me to hold on to that. And I think that all of us who've lost someone, that's why we have epitaphs. That's why we have, that's why we have eulogies. That's why we have obituaries. My sister was a professional journalist for the first 30 years of her life, and now she's in the political realm. But as part of that, she wrote a lot of stories about, about people's deaths. And she even covered, um, she did a cover story for Time about death by gun, where she had to interview it. All the people who died by gun in one week in America. That's an uplifting one for a 20-something-year-old reporter. Anyway, I asked her, um, I asked her, what does it feel like when you lose somebody by violence? Can you tell me? And she gave me some really good tips. And she said, you won't like what the police do. You'll want to know what the last moments were like. And you'll want to tell his story. And she was right. She was like 100% right on that. So flash forward to, you know, 15 or I don't know, 10, 10 or 15 years later, when I was at Pally and we started losing kids, you know, those, those stories about, we are stories, that's all we are. We are the stories we share with each other. When we go off this planet, all that we leave behind is some form of a story. That's why Homer has the Odyssey. We wanna know the story of those guys, right? So when a child dies, I don't think it's our job to say the way you left the planet is what's going to let me know whether your story is worth telling. Every human has a story worth telling. The best of us, the worst of us, we all have a story somewhere that's worth telling. And if you're in journalism, your job is to be the vehicle to allow those stories to come forward. So when someone says they don't want to cover a story because a student died by suicide, I'm troubled because for one thing, suicide tends to be linked to undiagnosed or diagnosed um, wellness issues that maybe we missed a chance on in the planet of getting to that person before they stopped the pain in a different way. If a child dies by violence, whether, quote, they started it, unquote, or they were a victim of it, they're not a story of a moment of violence. They're a story of a person. And if a child dies in a, in, of, of illness or disease, they, they, they didn't die of the disease. They died. I mean, they did die of this disease. But the disease isn't the story. They're the story. So refocusing on why we're here and what we need to say, I don't think that the cause of a person's death should be much of the information in anything that's about a feature profile of someone who's died. Sometimes it may merit a comment and sometimes, especially, I think it does not merit a comment. But I think the story of a person matters. I'm going to finish this up, uh, not with a Pally story, but with a story that came from this small town that I started teaching in. And again, remember in 2000, to 2003, I was teaching in a town that was very small and there weren't that many kids, right? So, and it happened that within, I believe a month, two boys died in the town. It was really, really horrific. One boy died by suicide. The other boy drowned in the river with three other boys with him. And it was just horrible. My editor-in-chief at the time was the person who said, I guess I have to do the story. And she asked me, 
I just don't feel like I should go see his mom and and talk to them. It doesn't feel respectful. And this is where I think for for kids, this is where they get this is where being new on the planet, being being only 14 or 15 or 16 years in the skin of a body is hard. Being new, it's hard to believe that you'll ever not be new. And being new in at 15 or new at 16 or new at 17, you can't imagine that you'll ever not be, right? You are perennial, perennially here. You are invincible. You are eternal. So it's really hard for a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old to see, you know, this is what comes to each of us. It just came early here. So we have to help them with that and go, I can see that you're really troubled, that you don't want to say to a mom, you've just lost your child. But that story that I just related about my friend who was killed or this mother who just lost her son, you know, that, that my editor had to go talk to, all that people want to do is tell the story. They want to say, I want you to know what this person meant to me. And when we give them a chance to tell a little of the story, we connect. As I said to my editor back then, and this was about the, the second death, the boy who, who took his own life, I said if his mother and father may feel that the reason he's dead is because people didn't see him. And I said, if we don't put him in the paper, aren't we acknowledging that, wow, even by dying, you can't make it into our pages. You know, if you're the homecoming queen, you can. But if you die, you can't. That doesn't make sense. So we have a duty. We have a duty. And the duty goes above what feels sometimes comfortable. And it goes beyond what feels comfortable for me. I hope that you understand that in many of the things I've been saying in this podcast, there has been great discomfort and a lot of a lot of rollades involved in, in some of these statements behind the scenes. But... Um, it's our duty to tell the stories and it's not our duty to be a judge or a jury. It's not our jury, our job to be, uh, to, to stand in the place of what one's religious training or statements would be. It's our job to be a newspaper or a yearbook and to tell the stories as truthfully and honorably as we can. There's a, there's a through line with your experience in the aftermath of Mike's passing and the way and the care that you're instructing your students today. And it's, it's so, it's so obvious and it's so real that, that, that you understand the story of a person matters. Uh, so thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you for listening, Mike. <clears throat> but, you bet. Uh, you know, I said that, that I would, I would tell that story, which I, I haven't told a lot of that story ever, ever on air or publicly, really. Some people know it, some people don't. Um, but I want to just say that you brought up something. You said uh, the, the, the hmm, mental wellness issues or whatever of the kids we're teaching now. I do want to talk about that for a second because I do see a change in the kids who've grown up since the iPhone. Um, the kids who've been born since 2007 and the kids who've been born since Google searches really became big, they're different. They're different than you you and I, Mike. We, we grew up, you know, I was just watching a, a Netflix series or an Amazon series, and I guess it doesn't matter which one. And it's set in 1977 with the, you know, they keep calling on the on the desk phone, right? You know, so they, they keep right. really making a point about, look at these things that are not cell phone and search-based, right? We have to use paper. We have to go to libraries. We have archives. 
but these kids are growing up differently. And, and although that has a lot of really cool, wonderful, interesting things, um, it has some things that have come with it that I'm really noticing in the last few years and currently. We have kids who are um, uh, often, I would say they're like perfect molecules. They're, they're like a, a diamond or a salt molecule. They, they are perfect. The only thing is they're not flexible. And if you tap them just right, they can shatter. And I think that hmm. I see this in a lot of kids. They can't ever get away from mom and dad. They can't ever get away from social media chasing them. They rarely are allowed to have just a breath and be lost and be bored and not expected to produce an Instagrammable moment for the family or their friends or uh, to produce something that might or might not be transmitted in ways that they can't control. They can't make mistakes at a party um, without the fear that maybe it's marked them for their entire lifetime in ways that they can't control. So I think we have kids who are always um, trying to thread the needle. Um, And to be honest, I really am impressed with the level of kindness and vulnerability I see in a lot of the students I work with and with their honesty and their willingness to bring themselves forth into discussions, their courage, their just personal courage. I think that's something that's going right right now uh, overall in what I'm seeing. I don't know how it is with you, but the kids I see here, I'm like, wow, I wish I'd been this kid when I was 16. I wish I'd had this kind of clarity of vision to be able to try to, to do the right thing, even if it was tough, as much as these kids do. But it has changed my teaching a little. Or maybe not a little, maybe a lot. Um, in the early 2000s when I was teaching, I noticed that I was really um, outcome-based. I was really like, hey, I'm starting on September 1st, and I want to get here by you know June 10th, and we're going to get there by gosh. And we're going to learn, and it's all about content. It's all about this. We're going to have fun and other things. But I was really focused more on like the work of school. What I've done lately, for one thing, I realized that many of my students are two, three, five, eight jumps ahead of me because of the advances in YouTube and podcasts, Mike Simmons. Uh, kids are searching for their own information. And often, if they found something they love, they're immersing themselves in ways that go way past where I am as a practitioner. And I don't find that, I don't find that to give me fear. I think it's kind of cool. They are finding ways to learn things in all parts of their life. So I have kind of changed. I'm like, I'm maybe more important to them now as the person who can build some pockets of space for joy, fun, and kindness. And I can take the tire pump and pump that into their school day because I can control those 85 minutes. I can make them have fun. You will have fun. I can make them have fun. And sometimes we do. And that's what we're going to do. And I can also remind them a little bit that there's more to you than performance. And I can also say the thing I love to see the most is when you don't get it right. And telling them that inside the journalism classroom, there's a great deal of room for you to not get it right today, but get it right next week. And that's cool. And that's what matters. Still going to tell you that what went wrong here needs to be adjusted, but it's not an unrecoverable. It's just a path. This is what it means to evolve. This is what it means to try again and get better. And I think that that is so important. I heard from a dad recently in our program who said that he just loved what journalism has allowed his daughter to do. 
that she's been able to learn so many soft skills and so many different things and has also learned by not doing it right the first time or by trying different ways until she got to the one that worked for her. And so that's kind of where I am these days. I'm like, you know what? I just want to, I think that my job is a little different than it used to be. I'm going to leave that with, you know, I, I used to teach at Pally and one of my colleagues, Esther, Esther was a mom and a grandmother. She still is a mom and a grandmother. And one day I went over to see Esther, who was like, you know, for a lot of kids, they're like, she's the coolest advisor ever. And I went over to her classroom and she was, I needed to talk to her about something. And she was inside her classroom talking to some kid and she was, you know, walking around the classroom, like moving desks and kind of tidying up while this kid was looking at her. I was, I was on the periphery. The kid didn't even really notice I was there. This kid was recounting some lament about college admissions or it was about a, a test or it was about something and, oh no, this isn't going well. And from across the room, I watched this teacher, but who's also a mom and a grandmother, turn to this kid and say something that I try to say as much as I can now. I, I borrowed this from her, and I, I, I'm just going to try and channel my inner grandmother. You know, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out fine. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I think we need to do a lot more of saying that to these kids right now. To ourselves, too. We need to say to ourselves, it's going to be okay, because it is. But say that to the kids. It's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. It's going to be okay. You're doing fine. To all of the uh, yearbook advisors in the audience facing the final deadline, because it is <laughs> final deadline season, Ellen and I say with one voice, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Ellen Austin, you are, um, you are a gift. You are a dear friend. You are an advisor that makes me want to be a better advisor. And I'm so grateful for you taking the time out of your day to, uh, to share some, some wisdom and some insight and just some real talk uh, on the podcast. Thank you so, so much. Mike Singh, thank you so very much for asking me to do this. It's been a, a real delight to talk to you. Thank you for asking the hard questions. Uh, you've made me think more about what it means to do the work that we do. And thank you for the great work that you're doing just all over the place, man, both in your classroom and in a service for a greater community like this. I think I think these podcasts are, are really wonderful. I appreciate that. I want to thank Ellen again for coming on the podcast today and for tackling such uh, significant topics uh, right in a row as we uh, as we worked our way through that conversation. This is going to be an episode that I go back and uh, listen to a second time, and uh, I would encourage you to, in whatever way is appropriate for you, to maybe share aspects uh, of it with your staff or editors if that's appropriate for you. And uh, certainly, if you want to engage uh, in, in the conversation, it would be great to hear from you. You can reach out at iteachyearbook at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at, at yearbookwise. And uh, Ellen, once again, thank you for sharing uh, so mindfully with our audience today. Again, friends, if uh, you're going to be at CSPA in March or NSPA in April out in Nashville, do say hello. We'll be there and doing some recording, uh, hopefully, at each place. It would be great to, uh, to say hello and uh, chat. And for all of you who are finishing your book deadlines in the coming weeks, uh, more power to you, to us all. Uh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. For right now, though, friends, be well. Good luck. We'll talk soon.